So tonight I want to talk about the next step in the Eightfold Path and this, the next several steps which have to do with what's called uprightness of heart. How to live in an upright way, not crooked or bent or wobbly or something like that. Don Juan teaches and talks very often in his, in his writing, in his speaking with Carlos Castaneda about choosing a path with heart about picking a way of practice and a way of life. And the one question that need be addressed is, is this a path with heart? Is this one that I can follow and live and live according to that feels in, in harmony with the deepest longings of my heart? Each path with heart, whatever we've chosen as our path, has a particular foundation for support. To choose a path with heart, that path has a foundation. Support for what? Well, what do we really want in our spiritual practice or, or the path that we may have chosen? I'm assuming that people have chosen, to some extent, some spiritual practice. What do you want? What, what do you want for the world around you? Think about it. Some people want it to be peaceful or more loving or wish that it would smarten up or be wiser perhaps or just a little less insane. Each of us has to answer that ourselves. What do we want for the world around us? And then what do we want for ourselves? Often the answer is the same bit more peaceful or more loving, a little wiser and taking it all less seriously. And I don't mean then perhaps uh, no anger or no fear, that gets a little too idealistic, but perhaps in our world and in ourselves not to be so caught in it, not to get caught to where it leads as it does in the world to so much violence and <coughs> sorrow and hatred. So do you have a sense of what you want just a little bit for the world or for yourself? How do we get this? The foundation or the support for a path with heart or a world with heart. It rests on the foundation of a basic harmony of our being. Because if your life is out of harmony, there won't be peace, or there won't be compassion, or there won't be wisdom. What does it mean if it's this basic harmony? Well, if it's missing, if it's not there, it's difficult to see clearly. And we suffer because of the pain of our conflict with the natural laws around us. One of the laws of every path with heart is the law of non-harming. Harmony means an absence of excessive greed, hatred, and delusion. There's a very specific definition. Excessive greed, hatred, and delusion means so much greed or so much hatred or, or so much ignorance that we act on it in ways that harm other beings. 
or that harm ourselves. And it's really the same, because if you hurt someone or something around, what happens? Generally, you feel bad and you suffer. They feel bad. Often they get you back later, or if they don't, your karma gets you back in some fashion. It happens back to you. It's not that this is sinful or bad or anything. It's simply the principles of how this game operates. So harmony means an absence of such strong force of greed, of hatred, of delusion, that we end up acting on it. It has a positive meaning as well. It means a nurturance of that karma of joy or serenity and truth or integrity so that our speech and our actions, our being in the world manifests from our heart. It's called sila in Sanskrit or shila uprightness of heart. And there's a beautiful Jataka tale that this Burmese monk Panditu I just sat with gave a whole talk on. Maybe I'll repeat it one night. It's its own long talk. But it's about a young man who went to a far-off university in India away from his family in ancient times. And he was telling his professor who was uh, teaching him, he was a beautiful and very wonderful young man, why his family life had been so happy and why his own life had been so happy. And in telling him, uh, the professor told him a tale of how his own child had died, his son had died. And this young boy said, that doesn't happen in our family. Children don't die. People don't die young. The professor was just aghast. How could that be? Death happens all over to everyone. And the boy said, well, there's something special in our family and for the last many dozen generations that we've recorded, no one has died young. So the professor became very intrigued, especially as he was grieving over the loss of his own child. And he put on his, took a pack and put on his traveling clothes and left the university to go back to the town where this boy lived and visit his parents and discover why people in that family did not die young. And there's a beautiful poem that comes from this particular Jataka tale. When he meets the father, he goes in to meet the father, and he tells the father that, I've come with terrible news. Your boy who was in my care at the university was struck by illness and has died. And the father laughs. It's a very unusual, amazing thing. How could this be? The father laughs. And he said, why are you laughing? And the father's eyes are really bright, and he's smiling, and he says, because the, young, the people in our family don't die young. He said, it must be some other boy. It can't be my son. And the professor brings out some bones from this bag and says, see, these are, this is your son. They're really sheep bones or something he brought along. And the father laughs further. He says, they're sheep bones. They're not the bones of my boy. He says, well, well, how can you be so sure? How do you know? And, and the man laughs a really heartfelt, deep laugh. He's very joyful. He said, because generation after generation we've recorded in this family that our children don't die young. He said, why is this so? And then the man begins his poem. And I want to look it up and I'll do the rest of it with some el- elaboration in another talk. 
But he said, because every morning when we rise, we rise with care, and we take time in the morning to contact each person in the family and see that they are well and speak with them. And every day when we rise, we look after the animals that are part of our family, and we see to them that they're fed and cared for and that they're not in distress. And every day when we begin our conversations with people, we take care with our words, and we speak only that which is sweet and that which is true and that which is helpful. And because of this, the people in our family do not die young. And every day when we go to work, in our fields or in business or in commerce, we act in ways which are kind to the other people and which are honest and have integrity. And because of this, the people in our family do not die young. And every day we look around us in the community and we see if there is someone or some being in need and we give what we are able to share and help with them. And because of this, for many generations, the people in our family do not die young. And he goes on and on with this poem. And it's so sweet, it's like nectar to listen to. And it's nectar because it's true. It's not necessarily speaking about chronological age and death. But again, it's talking about the heart and what it means for the heart to be awakened or open and to live in that way. That's what it means to be alive. So when your heart's closed, it's like you've already died in some way. And when I listened to it, I I listened to this story or read it, I just felt such delight in thinking of what, what power it has for us to begin to live our lives in a harmonious way. This is called sila. The first two steps of the Eightfold Path were right under, S-I-L-A, were right understanding and right attitude. Last week talked about of openness, of discovery, of playing with our life rather than being in a rut, of being willing to investigate and look at the laws of our life and the world around us. And now sila. Sila on one side means restraint, non-harming. On the other side, its positive dimension is loving or caring. And there's my teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to love to talk about sila. He would just light up and he would go on for hours, just being so happy, talking about a virtuous heart. We hear so little about it in our culture, in our time. And yet it's so important. It's the foundation of any path with heart. And it's beautiful. It's like the heart gets cleansed by our true words, by our, our virtuous action. It makes our life upright and strong. Speech, right speech, is the next step of the Eightfold Path. And it's the first of the three steps that speak to this uprightness of heart or virtue, sila. Speech has enormous power. There's a story of a Sufi master, and he goes in one day, he's a healer, to this household where there's a sick child, 
and there are people gathered around, and he goes over, and he passes his hand over the child, and he says some, says some sacred words, a kind of prayer, and he says, now you will be healed. And he turns around. The parents are very grateful, but are really uh, uh, disbelieving and somewhat um, a, uh, somewhat aggressive man says, how can you heal a child just by saying some words? This is nonsense, all this healing and this spiritual junk. And uh, the master turns to him and looks him in the eye and said, what do you know of this? You are an absolute fool. You know nothing in front of all these other people. Well, the guy becomes enraged and he turns red and he's, he's shaking with anger. And the master says, wait a minute, sir. If a word of mine has the power to make you turn red and shake with anger, why should not a word also have the power to heal? Our words, and we speak a lot in our life, we talk so much to each other, have tremendous power. They have the power to put us to sleep. Do you know that one? La, 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 yes, yes, no, no, back and forth for hours. Or they have the power to wake us up. Words of wisdom, words from, from the heart, words from the, the eye of wisdom can make all kinds of things clear to us, can help us to see, to let go, to discover, to awaken. There are two principles to right speech, to this foundation of speech as the first aspect of uprightness of heart. The first is that our words be true. And truth is so sweet. If you know anyone who really speaks honestly and truly, truthfully, well, admittedly sometimes they're a pain in the ass, but mostly one's sense of that person is of delight, that here's somebody I can go and speak to or listen to and hear that which is true. And it's just wonderful. Two principles. First, that the words are true for right speech. And secondly, that they're kind or helpful. Because it's possible to say what's true and not have it helpful at all. What one might call brutal honesty. I'll tell you just what I think, whether it's helpful or not. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, the old um, wise man and fool, this kind of strange character. Um, and he puts up his booth, it's sort of like uh, Lucy in, in uh, Peanuts, um, and it says, uh, you know, psychiatric assistance or psychological counseling or something like that. Only instead of five cents, it's five gold dinars. It's really a lot of money. People think, gosh, he must be very, very good to charge so much money. So they go up to him, one person goes, and he takes out five gold dinars and he puts it on the counter. And he says to Nasruddin, isn't that an awful lot to charge for, for just two questions? Because it says two questions, five dinars. Nasruddin looks back and he says, yes, it is. And what's your second question? <laughs> The second principle is that speech be helpful, not only that it be true, 
but also that it speak in some way that's compassionate or kind or useful to someone. Communication, what does communication do in our world? It makes society. Our society is built on communication. We're isolated individuals, in some measure anyway, even if perhaps cosmically we're one, but mostly we experience ourselves as separate. And our society, our friendships, our loves, the laws, the whole world around us is created by agreement through communication. It's very, very powerful. And when it's truthful or it's, it's honest or it's genuine, it builds trust and it builds a society of, of harmony with our friends, with our loved ones, with our family. When it's truthful, it opens the channels for, for, for our hearts to meet. When it's not, there's no chance for the hearts to meet, or very, very little. You know this in your relationships probably, don't you? That if you have stored things that you haven't communicated, stored resentments, what happens? Or if you have things that you've said that really haven't been true, that haven't come from your heart, that have been covered over or manipulative or, or made to sound one way when they weren't, what happens to that communion, that sharing, the space of love? It gets weakened, or it disappears for a little while anyway. It's not available to one. And in many ways, our love between people that we live with or spend a lot of time with, it rides on the vehicle of our communication. And if the communication is clear or open or truthful, where it's not held, where it's not stored, where there's forgiveness, then there's a real sense of communion. Classically wrong speech, or what's not considered right speech, is false speech, is gossip. Most of you have been to retreats have heard Joseph tell the story of when he vowed not to gossip anymore for, for a period of time. He picked a month. And for him, he meant, in this particular vow, not to speak about a person who wasn't there, even if it was a favorable thing, just not to talk behind someone's back and discovered this amazing thing, that 90% of his speech was eliminated. (laughs) That we spend so much time talking about third people, most of which is pretty useless. So it's not false speech, not gossiping, which is rarely helpful. Not backbiting or undermining people, refraining from harsh or abusive language. These are the classical things. But they really speak to this, this speech as a vehicle for love, as a vehicle for communion, as a vehicle for awakening. What right speech does, it asks us a question. Can we start to become conscious of all these hours where we talk on automatic pilot? Can we make it become more useful to ourselves and to our planet? To that question I ask, what do you care about? What do you want for the world and for yourself? When we speak falsely, when we backbite, when we gossip, and all those other kinds of things, 
What makes us do that? Have you ever done that? I mean, have you ever engaged in some kind of unskillful speech? <laughs> All right, so you know that. Now look for a second, because the, the process of awakening is an investigation. What makes us do that? Entertainment. Entertainment. Justification. Self-importance. Anger. Bonding. Yeah, sometimes we do. We'll talk about somebody else and put them down because it makes us a little closer to this other person. Or we do it for entertainment because we're bored. And God spare us in this culture if we ever had nothing to do and weren't entertained. It's horrible, you know. You come into someone's house and if they can't be with you, here, I'll turn on the TV. Would you like some music? Here's something to eat. You can read anything but just sit and wait and be bored. It's a terrifying thing. So there are all these reasons that we do it. Let's start to study it in our lives. Look at the moments. Again, don't judge it or anything. We're just looking at the principles of what makes happiness. Happiness or harmony comes from understanding the principles of things. So let's study also this week a little bit our speech and start to look and see. See if you can find moments of where you feel your speech isn't so skillful. And just look at what's cooking inside, what's going on when you do it. All right, so let's call right speech for the moment. I'd like to change its name. Speech from the heart. What keeps us from speaking the truth and from valuing what we know? What keeps us from speaking from the heart all the time and doing these other things, gossiping, backbiting, la la la? What does it? The society does, you know. I mean, it's not a very good example when you turn on the TV and most of what's there is false. Or politics. Or, uh, I mean, it is 1984, after all. Doublespeak. So that's one thing. We're in a soup of nobody who speaks straight. Nobody who tells the truth. It's a very hard thing. Kind of advertising to swim against the tide. It's really amazing. And it's not just our society. Don't think it's just ours. Sure, in our society, we hide death and paint up the corpses and put old people and mental patients, we lock them away so we don't have to look at them. We are a society which really suppresses a lot. We we just want to look at um, young, attractive... um, Well, it's not quite the youth culture that it was since the baby boom's getting a little older. Now we... (laughs) We settle for what it said in Time magazine. Now we settle for being active and attractive. Before it was young and glamorous, and now it's just active and attractive. But we have such a, such a myth of youth still in our culture, and so there's all these things we don't deal with. But it's really the same in, in other cultures. I remember working um, in uh, dealing with some Chinese merchants in Asia. And businesses in Asia, business is business. It has very little to do with virtue, generally. Um, And I went in this store, and this Chinese merchant had these statues, uh, and I was interested. And I said, that's a beautiful Cambodian statue. He said, yes, oh, ancient, fantastic, antique. I said, are you sure? He said, oh, yes, yes, really, really old. Told me the whole story, where he got it. I said, how much? He said, oh, um, $8,500. Wow, it's really fantastic. I looked at it, and I said, you know, 
This statue, this was made over in Ban Cheng Dao. I know where they make them. And it's a copy. Um, and uh, it's, it's not an antique at all. It looks like an antique, but they make it in that village. I know that so. And he looked at me and said, so how much will you give me for it? <laughs> Without a moment's hesitation. So it was $20 instead. All right, fine. And it's not... It's not to put down Chinese merchants, particularly. Because we all have that in us in some way. We all have that part. So what's, what is it keeps us that speaking the truth, from speaking the truth? The society that hides things around us, the American or the Chinese, it doesn't matter, the Chinese society. Why else don't we speak the truth? Right, we won't be loved. Look what happened to Jesus. You know, you've got to be real careful. That's an extreme, admittedly, but we fear that. We're really afraid. If we're not loved, then what'll happen? Then we'll be pretty much ostracized and abandoned, and then what happens when you're abandoned? You die, you know? So we better be careful and say the right things. Why else don't we speak the truth? Fear of rocking the boat. Fear of rocking the boat outwardly, people will get upset. Or also fear of being exposed inwardly. You know, if we really speak the truth, at times we'll show our own judgment and fear and violence and all those things in ourselves that may not want to let out so much. It would be wonderful to be able to let them out with a little less judgment. Because the fact that we all hide it and keep it in is partly what makes wars. We, we don't know how to express, we don't know how to share, we don't know how to see things and let them go and not be caught, so it gets bottled up in us individually and as a culture, and then we go to war. War is the expression of the fact that we don't know how to deal with the violence in ourselves. So, if you don't like nuclear war, it's tremendously compelling and important to learn about the shadow, about the dark side of ourselves, of our being. Blake, William Blake said, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the scoundrel, and the flatterer. And if we want to do good, it has to be in our words to the people we live with, and the people that we meet on the street, and the people that that we interact with in the stores, and the people that we work with. There, you want to stop nuclear war, pay attention to your speech. Pay attention to how and when your words are connected to your heart and when your words aren't connected to your heart. And what's going on when they're not. Without judging it, just study it. Begin to look at it. Look and see what you haven't said. Stop for a second just now. Think about your unfinished business. Because life, as you know, it goes quickly and sometimes it ends quickly. Who haven't you said something to that you really need to? Words of the heart. Just think about it for a minute. Think about or see if you can sense what stops you from doing it.
a lot of times what stops us is that we think we're, we're immortal and that we'll get to it, we'll live forever. As Don Juan said, the problem with you, Carlos, is that you think you have time. And to undertake a path with heart is to begin to realize how precious time is and that we have very little. So let's turn it around instead of asking why we're afraid to speak, and you can study that in yourself. Let's ask, what do we value again, going back to that question? Our life is short. What do you really value? What do you want? Courage, freedom, love, wholeness, integrity, happiness, pleasure. What is it that you love, that you value? When Gandhi was asked about non-harming, the non-harming of speech and action, ahimsa, the avoidance of harm to any living creature in word or deed, someone said to him, he was teaching this, and said, but couldn't one kill a cobra to protect a child or oneself? And his reply was, I could not kill a cobra without violating two of my vows, fearlessness and non-harming. I would rather try inwardly to calm the snake by vibrations of love. I cannot possibly lower my standards to suit my circumstances. But I must confess, he went on, that I could not carry on this conversation so serenely were I faced with a cobra in this room. We value, most of us, when we're reminded, we value integrity. It really lights up the heart to think about living in a way that that comes from inside where our actions and our words and our inner being are connected. It's very precious. And the, the whole understanding of sila or virtue, they're given in the Buddhist tradition as training precepts. Precepts which we practice. It's not some God-given law that we must follow, but precepts which we practice to begin to learn to live our life from our heart, to live our life as I said, as an uprightness of heart. Now Don Juan, let me see if I can find where Don Juan went here tonight. Brought him along. He says somewhere, I don't see him, that only when the inner dialogue stops can the hidden parts of ourselves be seen and revealed. We keep this endless speech going on inside as well. And it's not just internal. We'll get to that in another few nights, the internal dialogue. But really it's the external dialogue as well. We go la 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 and somebody else goes la 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 and we're on automatic and we're making friends or passing the time or whatever and not waking up, and not so much service to them or to ourselves. Why do we do that? Why do we talk so much? When the inner and the outer dialogue is going on, it hides our loneliness, keeps us from being bored, doesn't it? Keeps us from feeling afraid fills up all that space that's empty, that's scary. 
but it also blocks our heart from opening some way and from 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 wisdom growing because wisdom grows when things get quieter and you look in all these words think about it for a second when we meet someone and they say all the things that are happening to them and we say all the things that are happening to us you know mostly what's going on we're just saying hi I'm here are you in there that's about all we're just making a little contact we have all this elaborate ritual to do it or maybe if we're a little quieter we might be saying I love you but that's a pretty scary thing to say so we say and then I went here and she said and whatever and it, it keeps us amused it's true but also it's a it's a safe way of touching another person so I I just suggest to you that we can learn in our practice to let our words come a little more directly from our heart it's a wonderful thing to learn and it takes some practice and so the exercise for this week it had two parts one is to look <coughs> if you see those occasional moments of unskillful speech and just see what's cooking in there what's going on that motivates it so simply so you understand it without trying to change it just look you know and is it you trying to make friends or you're lonely or you're angry or whatever it is or you don't want to rock the boat and then look and see what you'd be afraid happen if you did and this opposite side of see if you can pay attention when you speak the rest of the time as best you're able and listen to your heart see if you can begin to practice letting your words come from your heart and a good clue for this is if you're in a conversation that lasts more than five minutes so you've been talking for a while pause or wake up for a second in the middle of it and ask inside now what does my heart really want to say you know you're having this conversation what's what's in there that really wants to be said Maybe I won't see this person ever again or whatever. What do I really want to say? And that can begin to empower your speech, to transform it from automatic pilot to this force where you start to wake up. It's fantastic. It's really wonderful to work with. And so I want to close by reading part of the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot, who's a wonderful, wonderful poet. And in this section, this is the end of the four quartets, he's talking about speech and about his life as a poet. He says, what we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is a beginning, is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. And every phrase and sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others, the word neither diffident nor ostentatious, an easy commerce of the old and the new, the common word exact without vulgarity, the formal word precise but not pedantic, the complete consort dancing together. When every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning, every poem an epitaph, and any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat, or to an illegible stone. That's where we start. We die with the dying. See, they depart, and we go with them. And we are born with the dead. 
see they return and bring us with them. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning, every poem an epitaph. Any action, a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat, If we could do just right speech, we would change our lives, we would change the world, and we would become enlightened. Just in that. Enlightened means awakened to what we do and what's true. Because to speak truly means that one has to touch one's heart, one has to listen to it, one has to be there. And then all the rest of what one calls a path with heart, follows from that. So, comments, questions, discussion, anything. That's lovely. Did anybody else look at patience and impatience? What did you see? Was there much of it? Uh-huh. And what was happening in those moments where you were impatient? What did you discover? See anything else there? There's something very crucial to see. Aversion. Aversion, why? To what? Uh-huh, something unpleasant. What did you see? When you feel impatient, there comes this irritability. Uh-huh. So if you observe it, <laughs> it will pass. If you give it space, it will pass. That's lovely. The thing Lynn said is very important. We get impatient when what's going on? Something is unpleasant or painful. And we don't like it, and we resist it, and we tighten around it, and we want it to go away, and we want the pleasant. And part of this path of heart, of beginning to learn to open our heart, and therefore open our being to the world, means opening to light and dark, and up and down, and pleasure and pain. So that the times when we feel impatient are really a time of a lesson. Okay, breathe. Can I soften? Can I open to this? Can I open to my impatience or my irritability? Can I see it come and go? Can I feel the pain? It might be that it's hot or you're in a traffic jam or you're late or something that's painful for you. No, or you're hungry and the food hasn't come or whatever makes you impatient. Can I soften and let myself feel that and smile just a little bit? Just make a little space around that that dance and see that it's ple- as you said, it changes in its pleasure and pain and pain and pleasure and pleasure and pain and pain and pleasure. Pleasure and pain and pain and pleasure. And, <laughs> and neutral and pleasant and unpleasant and neutral and pleasant and pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. Does anyone have anything else happening? <laughs> and the heart, one sec, and the heart of a sage, of a wise woman or a wise man is one that it sort of gets melted in this crucible of practice 
where it's been barricaded. I don't want to feel too much pain. I'll open to the pleasure. But even that gets scary because it goes away. Where it's been melted, maybe just through, through enough battering of life and enough, enough consciousness, enough real awareness. You need them both together. Where it starts to melt and you say, it's okay. I'll take night and day and I'll take birth and death and I'll take love and sorrow and I'll allow for it all, for that whole dance. Um, and then there comes what's called the greatness of heart, where the eyes and the heart see with a kind of wisdom that that's what's true about the world, that it has birth and it has death, and it has irritability and it has joy, and that it somehow, somehow opens to that without as much resistance to that which is difficult or quite as much stickiness and grasping of that which is pleasant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.